So we're going to continue with our series that is titled Ascend, and we're going to go again into Ephesians chapter 4 today. Ascend refers to ongoing upward motion in our lives, and chapter 4 is all about stepping up, or in the words of Paul in verse 1, living a life worthy of the calling we have in Christ. Uh, In recent weeks, we've been looking at the gifts that Christ left behind in his ascension. Uh, These are for the church to take up and and to continue to minister as his hands and feet. And uh, we're seeing a pattern emerge here as we explore these gifts. Uh, Jesus is the embodiment of these gifts. We see that he holds these five ministries uh, together in perfect tension. Uh, And he sets the bar for what these are. And one of his chief earthly titles in the Gospels is Rabbi, Teacher. And one of the chief earthly titles for his followers is disciples. A teacher and student relationship is involved in following Christ. Therefore, to continue this ministry, the teacher and the student relationship continues as a gift from Jesus in his ascension. Uh, The Great Commission is pretty clear to us. uh, Draw in learners and teach them. And one of his major descriptions of himself in John chapter 10 is the Good Shepherd. Uh, Prior to this, God through Ezekiel promised that he himself would be the shepherd of his people. And to continue this ministry, the gift of the shepherd is left to us by Jesus in his ascension. Uh, Acts 20 features an emphatic charge from Paul to the Ephesian elders, uh, reminding them to be faithful shepherds of the church that has been purchased by blood. That's an ominous uh, warning to, to Christian leaders right there. And Matthew 25 challenges us about how we shepherd each other. Christ, our shepherd, will judge us, will return as judge. And Matthew chapter 25 challenges all of us about how we shepherd each other. Uh, Christ, our shepherd, will return as judge and will hold us to account for how we treat each other within the flock of Christ. Now, this trend is going to continue with this next gift as well. We'll look at uh, this passage that we've been camped on for a few more weeks. Um, And it's uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Let me read that out to you now. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, today is Pentecost Sunday. This is the day where harvest is celebrated in Jewish liturgy. Uh, It's the day where, for the first time, the wonders of Christ were proclaimed in enough languages for all the pilgrims of Jerusalem to hear. This is the day where 3,000 people responded in baptism and repentance. And I think it's a wonderful thing that on Pentecost Sunday, we're exploring the ascension gift of the evangelist. Now, this word is a title for somebody who brings glad tidings, a person deployed or emphat- a person deployed to emphatically deliver good news, which is accompanied by a clear call to specific action and thought in response. Now, this word is a title for somebody who brings glad tidings. It's a person deployed to emphatically deliver good news which is accompanied by a clear call to specific action and thought in response. Uh, This is how we see Jesus embodied this role from the very beginning. Uh, Mark chapter 1 shows us this, verse 14 to 15. 
It says this, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, in this isolation time with all the Netflix and chill time we've had, uh, you may have noticed the number of uh, medieval and Viking-type shows that have been on offer for us to binge on. Uh, I'm personally not a fan of these things, but if you are, hey, I cast no judgment. It's, um, It's probably good TV. I don't know. But I will perhaps call your attention to uh, one of the roles that seems to appear in these shows, uh, that of the Herald. Uh, Sometimes that is in play in a lot of these medieval-styled shows. Uh, These are people assigned to run ahead to announce the impending arrival of a king or somebody awfully close to him. And in response, a loyal village would hopefully clean house quickly and get everyone assembled to get everybody ready to receive the monarch. Uh, I did some reading recently about the Queen's visit to Mount Gambia back in 1954. Apparently, there was a a lot of rivalry between us and uh, Portland in Victoria there to get the gig. And and once the decision was made to visit Hamilton and then us, the preparations got started really um, uh, full on in this neighborhood. Uh, Shop fronts were draped in royal crowns and Union Jacks, and everyone showed up to greet her in their Sunday best. Uh, apparently, the city grew to four times its population for the two-hour visit. And, uh, and here's a funny one. 6,000 school kids were supposed to assemble at Vansittart Park to form a map of Australia and the word welcome. And the whole process went pear-shaped the moment the Queen's plane flew over. <laughs> uh, there were eight pipe bands. Uh, there was apparently a talking horse that failed to do so when required. Fancy that. And a whole carnival marked the occasion. Uh, when, a mon- when a monarch is known to be arriving uh, in Australia, entire communities spring into action. In the days not long before Jesus, Israel had been called to respond to a monarch in a pretty distinct way. Uh, I'm referring here to Caesar Augustus, and we're told that this guy held himself in pretty high esteem. Uh, there's an inscription on in a city south of Ephesus. It dates back to 9 BC, which commemorates his birthday. It's a thing called a calendar inscription. And in this inscription, we read that Augustus was sent as a saviour for us and our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. This inscription goes on to say that the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of glad tidings. That's the gospel there, the evangelon. For the world that came by reason of him. And finally, it says this, All people of the world who surrender and pledge allegiance to him would be granted salvation from destruction. This is the pagan royal shadow that hung over Israel in the first century. So imagine the uproar in Galilee when Jesus began to herald his own kingdom. I have glad tidings, everyone. The kingdom of God is now near. Imagine the hope springing up in Israel at the sound of that. They had hopes of a native king who would bring things back to order for them. Uh, And uh, so so that uh, outside pagan forces like Rome would no longer rule over them. But Jesus was wearing the robe of a rabbi. Uh, This wasn't quite in the Jewish plan. And he spoke in a way that their occupying overlords would call, well, treason. As far as Rome was concerned, the gospel was already in place. The good news, the glad tidings was already in place. 
So in light of all that, imagine the gravity of the call to action they were being drawn to here. Repent and believe. Jesus doesn't look like a king, but he wants you to believe in his kingdom. He doesn't look all that conquering and powerful, but he wants us to go all in with him. Whether we're religious and devout like the Jews or pagan and overly trusting in a human empire like the Romans, Jesus says, stop, you're doing it wrong. Repent, think differently, and do life his way instead. The good news of the kingdom of God would have its own agenda, and it went well beyond all human schemes. It stood in the way of emperors and empty religion alike, and it called for all things to be subject to his ways. And if you aligned yourself this way and put all of your trust in this kingdom instead of religious approval or the empire, you would find true freedom and liberty, even while most of the rewards for doing so would still yet to be coming. The gospel as Jesus preached it was dangerous and exciting and hopeful. It was treasonous to the world and yet far greater than the world. If Jesus is the embodiment of what an evangelist is, then the ascension gift of the evangelist is a crucial culture-shifting ministry for the church to lean into. And in the ministry of Jesus, we see that the evangelist does two key things. Internally, the evangelist challenges religiosity. They gather people, but at the same time, they hold no tolerance for holy huddles. They remind the religious of what their religion is to accomplish. They infuse mission, mercy, and justice into into devotion and piety. They turn our heads outward when we're focused within. They point us to the harvest and pronounce it to be white, not green, not yellow, but perfectly timed for reaping. They lead the charge in mission. They see their existence to be like that of Christ, to seek and save the lost. And they equip us and they hold us accountable for our part in this as well. The entire culture of a congregation changes when evangelists are identified and embraced and given space to lead. And externally, they challenge the claims of Caesar. Now, Paul has written already in chapter 2 that there is a way of life that is in opposition to Christ and it brought about death. That death came because they embraced the outlook of the world and the cravings of the flesh as well as taking their moral cues from the devil. In Christ's ministry, the opposing worldview was something credited to Caesar called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And Peter, in his letters, would go on to call it, well, Babylon. Today, in an ultra-capitalist view, we might call it the Great Australian Dream, or in an ultra-liberal way, we might call it a godless version of our humanistic utopia. Whatever we call it, as long as it stands in opposition to Christ's kingdom dream for humanity and the world, it will be called out and challenged. And this is what evangelists do. They call out the futility of the empires of the world, and they announce and demonstrate Christ's kingdom as the superior one. They call those entrapped in these places to come out from those things and to step away from the value systems they hold, to reject the behavior they promote, to let go of the power people have attained in those places. They preach the message of the kingdom, repent, make a distinct choice to live differently and believe, transfer all that trust and value we've had in the things of the world 
and place it fully, wholly, and solely in the kingdom of God. And in doing these things, we see that entire communities can change, not by judging them, but by inviting them to come under the rule of Christ, not the rule of Caesar. So how do we interact with this ministry now? Well, this has been a bit of a source of grief to me over the years, particularly in Baptist ministry. Uh, Recent church surveys have indicated that the Australian Baptist Church as a whole has experienced some growth, but the vast majority has been from incoming uh, migrants for the most part. In one survey only a few years ago, a third of our Aussie Baptist churches admitted they were not active in evangelism at all. Uh, Part of the problem, and I say this not just about our movement, I say it about a lot of places, is that we've outsourced this ministry a lot over the years. Uh, We've relied heavily on people like Billy Graham in Baptist circles past, and more recently, Reinhard Bonnke and and Reggie Dabbs and others in Pentecostal circles. Uh, We've put on events. We've gotten the hotshot communicator in to do all the heavy lifting. And we've kind of made evangelism something we bring people to but it's not necessarily something that we do. Friends, something has to change. And like all these ministry gifts so far, the scriptures show us a pattern of those apportioned more to be evangelists uh, and people who operate prominently in this calling. And then we have a sense of individual expression in amongst that as well. Uh, I'll refer to a passage I've used before in other series to show this in play, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Let me read this passage out to you. It says this, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. You'll notice here that Paul has referred, uh, maybe helpfully or not, I'm not sure, to you and us in this passage. Um, Us appears to be a group that are specifically gifted to be evangelists. Uh, People, through grace, are portioned more to lead the charge in this area of church ministry. They seem to work in a clear sense that this is what God is particularly calling them to do. They have a message to proclaim, and their desire here is that the church simply prays for them continually, uh, and particularly praying that they can experience open doors and clarity in speech. Now, Paul himself names himself, Paul names himself in the us here. Uh, We have Timothy, we have Barnabas and Silas and John Mark making scriptural cameos. Uh, And we have people like Philip the Evangelist, who was willing uh, willing and able to do ministry in pretty awesome places, including the desert with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then we see this reference to you. Uh, This is the rest of the congregation that embraces evangelists and prays for them and takes their own evangelistic cues from them. Uh, The evangelistic efforts of the you is often a journey more of demonstration than proclamation, as we see in this verse. Uh, It's wisdom in dealings with others and and graceful conversation. Uh, It's what we might call in some sports circles the slow play. Uh, We take care with other people because we're in and around their circles all the time. 
the you engage in conversation and conduct that is just salty enough to create intrigue. And we're open and ready when the slow play yields an opportunity to speak. Uh, you'll know you're permitted uh, because your life and your faithful presence will call, cause others to ask the right sort of questions. So whether you're an us or a you, we need to work out how to mobilize uh, each other in order to be a healthy church that lives out the fullness of Christ. Now, I'm a fanboy of a writer named Alan Hirsch, and in one of his more recent books, he gives us clues on how to identify the evangelists in our midst. Uh, he offers the following list of characteristics to consider. He says to look out for people who have a knack of recruiting others, particularly to causes. Uh, look for people who draw others in with their passion for something greater. Uh, look for people who are simply contagious when they speak of their faith. Uh, people who are good apologists, uh, storytellers or networkers. Um, if any of that sort of stuff describes you, then an evangelistic gift may be resting on your shoulders. Um, Hirsch also tells us there are outside world indicators uh, and certain vo uh, vocations that we choose might indicate that you have something to bring to this ministry set in the church too. Um, if you gravitate to entrepreneurial roles or marketing or journalism, uh, if you're a bit of a deal maker or a salesperson, you may be more gifted in the evangelistic space than you give yourself credit for. If you find yourself able to quickly capture the song of an organization to grasp what its cause and culture is and be someone who moves that along, then an evangelistic gift set might be resting on you. Now, none of this is big event based. This is not calling, uh, we're not thinking stadiums here. We're thinking about faithful presence every day. None of this relies on the ability of one major player. None of this requires us to be the next Billy Graham to come to or any of that sort of stuff. Um, and I can say as a former insider that these methods are not always that productive in the long run anyway. Uh, we have a lot of money spent, uh, and in my opinion, for not enough result. Um, we do, it's too much of an outsourced shadow cast over the church, and I think that's a bit of a hamstringing effect for us. Um, but in, in Scripture, we see it's simply faithful presence in a community. Uh, it's bold proclamation and demonstration of the kingdom of God. Um, and it's something that challenges the neighborhood and its seizes, while at the same time challenging the church and its religion. When we think evangelist, stop thinking stadiums and guest speakers. Think instead of local faithful presence and a mobilized local church. So as we consider the grace gift uh, of the evangelist in our setting, it's high time for the evangelist to be active. The world is needing hope. It's needing to know something greater than the empires of the world right now. And I'm finding that hope is an evangelistic word in the time that we're in. As a church, we need to identify the us members of the church and recognize them even formally if we can. At the very least, we need to pray for them, for their opportunities, for their boldness, for their passion, for their clarity. And if we're bold, we could also actively get on board with their adventures too. And if we can identify the us, we'll be better placed to mobilize the you. We might not all be called to be out there evangelists, but we all do have that call to do some. So in light of all this, let's consider the evangelistic gift in our church. First, are you holding this gift in greater measure? Are you putting this to use in the church? Uh, look, 
can I be honest? I find that these people often seem to be outliers in the church community. Um, and, and sometimes evangelists, if they're not careful, might even develop a bit of disdain for the gathered church. Um, I've heard of this a lot. I'm out here doing all the work and the church has no clue about this stuff. Um, you know, look, I respect that and I get it. But I've also found that that's a line of thought will event, that will eventually break you and render your work void. Now, your calling requires you, friend, to be more engaged and integrated than that. Your church needs to be praying for you and celebrating your wins. And she needs to be encouraged and trained by you. She needs your passion, your insight about how to speak to Babylon, and your challenges to us in our religious practice when we're looking a little bit too inward. We kind of need you. And if you're more on the other side of things, the you going, I'm not that sort of person, that's cool. What are you demonstrating about the kingdom of God in your context of life? Uh, what slow plays are in action right now? What irons are in the fire? Is your radar up when we, uh, when you are listening for the chance to have the conversations that come up around you? Uh, Peter, First uh, Peter, chapter three, verse fifteen to sixteen says this: In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you or good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of, of their slander. This is an example of that slow play in, in action here in hostile Babylon. If you're more of a you, simply be faithfully present. Live in hope and be ready to answer. And if you're an us, please get amongst us. And show us how it's done. We're going to stop here. We're going to consider that in our own reflection time and we'll pray.